The rest of the book of Exodus covers just a year worth of time, and that is a tragedy. But we have amazing servants and people helping. I didn't just call you servants. Um, we have ma- ma- amazing people doing service. Um, we'll edit that out in the recording. It'll be all right. Um, there will be no indication as to which goes where, but all right. So anyway, so back to back to Exodus. I didn't even need those things anyway. Um, the next twelve chapters cover just the the narrative ends, and the next twelve chapters cover God and Moses talking and conversing on the mountain where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and lays out all of the instructions for the sanctuary and how it's going to affect their lives. And then we get to chapter 32 through 34 where the narrative continues and is picked up with this story of what the golden calf. The golden calf that was built. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles. Most of the text will be on the screen this morning. But I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Exodus chapter 32. We will start with Exodus chapter 32. But first, but before we do that, let me, let me just tell you what we're going to look for today. Because in Exodus chapter 32, the main problem that is facing the Israelites is God has said that his presence is going to be withdrawn. And so today we want to look at how in the story of the golden calf to the story of Moses interceding for his people to being placed on the rock and covered with God's hand as God's glory is revealed to him, we want to see how God's presence is replaced, is then restored, and then revealed. So we'll be looking at those three things today, how God's presence is replaced, how God's presence is restored, and how God's presence is revealed. Exodus chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people of Israel, so all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molten calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast day to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The story of the golden calf, one that is, I think, very well known that we look at and just say, how could these people, how could the Israelites 
within weeks, days of receiving this covenant from God and saying, everything you command we will do, have turned and made this idol and began to worship this idol. But we must to understand how God's presence has been replaced, dig into this a little deeper because there is more than I think I have seen before spending time this week unpacking this passage. We just often look and say the Israelites made an idol and worshipped it. But I think it's much more sinister than that, much more subtle. The people have been, Moses has been delayed. The people are waiting for something to happen. They're waiting for Moses to come back and they are getting discouraged. They are feeling like their, their leader is gone. Their leader is gone and is not coming back and they've been promised that he's going to come back and they just are waiting and waiting and waiting and they begin to get discouraged. Does this sound applicable at all to today? How we have looked and looked and preached and heard about a soon coming Savior. And yet here we are 150 years later of our church preaching that message still here. And we begin to get distracted. We begin to become complacent. And the Israelites were had the same thing happen, but only in like 40 or less short days. This has happened to them. When they say to Aaron, come, Moses is gone. Moses is gone and is not coming back. We need something else. And so I've often thought that what the Israelites did was they made this idol. And they worshipped it. And that was a dumb thing to do. They, they created other gods. They, they went back to Egypt. They, they, they said, let's go worship Egyptian gods. But if we unpack this a little bit this morning, and as we do that, it was much more sinister. Their request, come make gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The idol that they build, the golden calf that they are making, is not meant to be a different God. It is not meant to be a God that is some Egyptian God. The altar, the idol that they built, is meant to be a symbol that replaces Moses as their leader. Moses has been replaced as their leader by building this golden idol. What they are doing is saying, we're, we're discouraged, we, we're tired of waiting. And so Aaron, the recently ordained high priest, says, I have a plan. I will try to, I will try to move their worship away from Moses to God. The, the Israelites' faith was not in God at this point in time. The Israelites' faith was in Moses. Moses was gone, and their intercessor, their mediator between them and God was gone. And so they decide to build a bull. The symbol of a bull in, is often not 
meant to represent a god. There are some bull gods in Egypt, but a lot of times the gods of Egypt would be depicted riding on a bull. It would be kind of their transportation device, if you will, kind of a pope mobile of sorts. It was the, the thing to move around the, this dignitary. It was the Humvee stretch limo that transported this awesome person. And so what they have done is they have, after receiving instructions on how to build the ark, have said, well, that's not working for us. Let's replace God's mode of transportation and let's build him a pagan mode of transportation. Let's replace the mercy seat of God with a bull. And so in their effort to have somebody in between them and God, they build a pagan symbol and say, God, come set your presence above this idol. They are replacing God's presence. This is drawn out more as Aaron. I believe Aaron trying to manipulate the situation. In verse 5, Aaron says, Tomorrow is a feast day to the Lord. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you will notice that the feast day to the Lord, the word Lord is spelled out in all capital letters. That is always an indication that the word there is the unspeakable word of, Yah- of God's name, Yahweh. And so this is not, this is not making other gods before God. This is, they've built this idol, they've built this spot, this, this being to be their transport to say, Moses is the man who brought us out of Egypt. Our faith is in Moses. We have seen the miraculous things he has done from the plagues to parting the water to, to bringing water forth from a rock to bringing the commandments of God down to them to giving all of these things. They have replaced Moses and replaced the spot for God's presence to be. And Aaron is still trying to manipulate the situation. He's trying to say, well, let's come to this place, but give worship to the true God. They have not replaced God. They have replaced Moses. God's presence, his place of being has been replaced, has been turned into a pagan symbol. They have built a pagan ark for God. In their discouragement and in their attempts to remain faithful and have courage They have said, God, we want to worship you, but it has to be on our terms. It has to be on the terms that we set forth that we are going to worship you. Because we are scared and we feel that you are too much for us to handle. I often wish and wonder what it would have been like to be the Israelite weatherman on K-Sinai 101. Today, it is going to be mostly cloudy. The persistent cloud over the mountain will not be away. To the east and south, it'll be sunshiny. The cloud of God was there with them at all times, but yet Moses was gone and they were saying, God, the mediator between us, the person who is leading us is gone and we are scared of being in your presence. We need to replace 
how we interact with you and we will worship you on our terms. Church, I fear that it is possible for us to fall into the very same trap. The very same trap. And as I've studied this, I've seen that this story, the main character, the focus of the story is not the Israelites who built this, who requested this idol, who requested this to happen. This story is about Aaron. This story is about the leader that Moses has placed who fails to stand up when he must be firm for his beliefs, who fails to stand firm and say, I believe in God and here is what can happen. His presence is right here. Do not fear. God is still with us. We do not need to fear that Moses is not back with us. God is right there. His presence is billowing and burning on top of this mountain. And Aaron fails to uphold that. But friends, in Aaron's failing, God's mercy is allowed to be seen in ways that are unimaginable. Moving on to Exodus chapter 7 and 8. I don't have this on the screen, but continuing the story, if you're reading along, and Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, Go get down. This is after the sin has begun to happen, after the idol has been built, after God's mercy seat has been replaced with a pagan bull. Get down, Moses, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molding calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make a great nation of you. Why, why no amens? Why no shouts of hallelujah? Why no jumping for joy at the mercy that we have just seen displayed by God's actions? Friends, I tell you that this verse right here that we usually look at and say is a representation of all the things we do not understand about the Old Testament picture of God. And we gravitate towards the New Testament picture of the God of love that we see in Jesus Christ. But this verse right here is the essence of who God is. Is the essence of God's mercy in our lives. Let's unpack it so that you will believe that this verse shows God's mercy in our lives. Because remember, God's presence has been replaced. They are actively sinning down in the valley. And Moses is up talking with God and God says, Get out of here. Leave me alone. Your people are making a mistake.
at this point in time, God has every right. Every right to say these people are done. To say these people have have messed up not even 40 short days after saying they will follow me, they have messed up. And in this moment, God could have wiped them out and just been like, we're done. But Moses, as a mediator, Moses as a type of Christ, a prefiguring of Christ, a example of what Christ was going to do while the Israelites were down sinning, Moses began to plead on their behalf. While they were sinners, Moses began to plead. And Moses saw in God's request, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them and I will make you a great nation. Moses saw that God was giving the opportunity for mercy. When a best friend of ours tells us to leave us alone, we have those certain friends that we know, leave me alone, is just code for, I need you right next to me. My wife, I must interpret her leave me alones. It usually means shut your mouth and get over here and just hold me and be nearby. That's what it usually means, right? Okay. We understand that. There are, it is so hard for the human race to understand and define a God that is un-understandable, that is beyond our comprehension. It is hard for us to do that. And so here's your $15 word for the day. And so we anthropomorphize. Let me say that again. We anthropomorphize God in ways that we understand to describe that which is undescribable. And it is only possible to describe the love of God in such a way that when sin is involved, God's love is wrath. And it is not wrong or disturbing to hear that or to say that or to understand that because sin in the hands of a loving God will always look like wrath. Sin in the hands of a God who is pure and must be pure because if God was not wrathful, was not the most abhorrent towards sin was the most unrelenting towards allowing sin in the lives of the Israelites. If that God existed, he would not be worthy of our worship. He would not be worthy of our praise. He would just be blah. But because God is worthy and pure and holy and unimaginably loving, when sin is involved, the only response of love towards sin, and it's really, I should say it the other way, the only response of sin towards love is to feel wrath. Sin creates wrath. In this moment, when God says, leave me alone so my wrath may burn, Moses sees an opportunity. An opportunity 
to plead, to intercede, to mediate for his people while they were still sinning. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Actively sinning, Christ died for us. And before Moses knew anything, before Moses knew anything about what was happening, he said, God, stop. I will not leave you. So Moses intercedes. And there are five, I'm sorry, four um, ways that Moses interceded for God. So let's read his prayer to God. So after God says, get down, I will make you a great nation. I will start over with you. Moses is given the opportunity to be the father of the nation. He pleads for his sinning, his sinning friends. And the Bible says, Moses pleaded with the Lord his God, verse 11. Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. And relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And all this land I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses intercedes. And begins to restore God's presence. I have those verses to show on the screen. We're going to just slide right by those. Because we just read them. Moses intercedes in four ways. Moses intercedes with reason. He says, he pleads with God, there is a logical reason why you should not pursue the path you are saying you want to go down. There is reason. God says, come, let us reason together. I think that means horizontally between us as a church, as Christians, to reason together. But why does it not also mean that we cannot reason to God? That we cannot reason with God and say, Lord, this is what's happened in my life, and I know that you are gracious. I know that you are compassionate. I know that you are merciful. I need that now. So Moses reasons with God. He appeals to God's reputation. Why would you let the Egyptians, who we just destroyed, come out and see us, then turn around and be destroyed by you? He appeals to God's reputation. He asks God to relent. And this is not relent from sin. This is relent from enforcing punishment on the people who are sinning. He asks them to relent. And then he pleads to God to remember. Remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. And so in these four ways, Moses begins to intercede. 
Moses begins to mediate and turn this around. Moses does not alter God's plans. Moses in this command sees God's plans and begins to carry out the mercy that God has given in the moment that he didn't destroy them instantly. In the moment that he said, leave me alone, it is a plea for let me step back and let me grieve what is happening. Let me step back and rest, be apart from the sin that I'm dealing with. Let me just take a moment to think. And Moses sees in that God's purpose. And Moses does not alter God's purpose. Moses carries out God's purpose of mercy in the lives of these Israelites who were down there corrupting corrupting the picture of God. Here's where I normally turn to my notes and remember what I was going to say next. So I will turn to my memory banks and remember what I'm going to say next. I'm good now. It's more fun this way. Oh, yes, here we go. So Moses begins to restore the picture of God. Moses begins to restore that presence. And in verse chapter 33, and this is where today you're experiencing something a little different for me. You're experiencing my first sermon after being done with my master's program. So this is my first sermon where I've had all sorts of headspace, where I've had all sorts of headspace and energy and cognitive willpower to study. And I'm ready to preach for about three hours on this topic. But fear not, I will not do that. So we're going to skip over a bunch of amazing stuff that I found as I, as I studied this throughout the week and move right on to chapter 33. The Lord, Moses, is still in his pleading to restore the presence of God. And in verse 12... He says to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. Did I just read that twice? That's what preparing this at 10 o'clock will do to you. And he said, my presence, and finally we get to the point, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The fear of the Israelites was not the punishment that they received because punishment happened. A plague came on them for what they had done. Some of them who did not respond to God's mercies were killed as a result of this action. But it was not after God did not give them a chance to be merciful, a chance to repent, a chance to experience the grace of God. And it is this moment that Moses has begun to restore 
the presence of God. Because it was the fear of God's presence leaving the Israelites that made them begin to finally turn around, that made them begin to repent. And it's at this moment that Moses begs to go deeper. After the presence of God has been restored, Moses wants more. It's not enough to live in the to to live just with a simple knowledge of God. The beauty of God is when we when you study his word, when you live in his presence, you want more. And so Moses boldly says, "Please show me your glory." The glory of God Moses wants to see this amazing picture of God because he has, he has seen God's feet. He has seen God in the, the mountain. He has seen glimpses of God, but it's not enough. He wants the veil to be fully removed to see God. He wants that to happen, but no one, no man can see God and live. And if anyone could see God and live, wouldn't it be this man, Moses? If anyone had earned the right to see God, to be brought in behind the veil, to be brought in to the point where God could just sit down and say, here I am, would it not have been Moses? But even then, Moses cannot see the face of God and live. But God, in his mercy, longs, longs, desires to reveal his presence to us. God longs to restore what has been broken. But it is out of mercy that God has kept the veil in place, that God has not revealed his true glory to us. But Moses is like, I don't care. Show me your glory. I want more. Moses boldly goes before God and says, show me your glory. Take this moment to get my notes back in order. God, in his loving mercy, and but desire to pull back the veil says, I will pull back the veil. I will put you in this rock. I will cover you with my hand. I will keep you safe. And when I have passed by, I will let you see my back. Again, this is another one of those times where we put human terms onto God. I don't think that Moses saw God walking away. I think he saw where God had been. He saw where God had been and in that could see the gracious, loving compassion of God. And it's in chapter 34 where we have the description of what God is. Let me look at my notes and or my slides. Oh, yes, here we go. Chapter 34 is where God is described. And it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, and there proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is one of those texts where the first half makes me jump up for joy and the second half makes me stop and pause. We've been talking as we've been talking about God's dealing with us and how we can look and understand God. Pastor Walt has laid out for us the idea of descriptive and prescriptive law. Prescriptive law is the kind, if you haven't heard him describe it, I will describe it for you. If you want to know more, talk to him because I'm just learning this myself. Prescriptive is where the law of gravity, when I drop something, let go of it, it will fall down because that's just what happens. Am I right? Okay. Right. So far, I'm correct. Although I think that's maybe descriptive because it's going to happen. I can't stop it. Running the stop sign is the prescriptive. I can run the stop sign and maybe live or maybe die, but it's not going to end my life. However, I cannot change gravity. I cannot change who God is. And the end of this verse has often been one of those things where I have said, Lord, what on earth are you doing? Because it sounds like God has just stood up and said, if you break my law, I'm going to punch you so hard that your great-grandson's nose will bleed and his teeth will be chipped because you have made me angry. I am going to punish, vindictively bring pain and suffering for your mistake onto your children and your children's children and their children and on down the line. I am going to do this. And that would be a prescriptive method. Mess up and God's going to hurt you. But when we understand God's descriptive law, when we understand what God is describing that I am telling you what's going to happen if you sin, we begin to see that this is not prescriptive of what's, what God's going to do. It's descriptive of what is going to happen in our lives. It's descriptive of the way God has created us. And this is being proved by science. A $10 word for you. Epigenetics. How many of you have ever heard of epigenetics? I have just started to learn about this, and I'm not an expert on it in any stretch of the imagination. But what they have done is they have learned that while DNA can't be changed, some of the protein genes or whatever you want to call it, I am not a scientist, some of the the protein genes on it that turn certain things on and off, those can be changed. And those can be affected by us. A great use of rats is in experiments like this. They have bred rats to be stupid. Rats are stupid. I understand. Most of you are saying rats are stupid no matter what. But they found a way to dumb down a rat and make him stupid. And that stupidity gene was passed on. Please do not take that too far and think about people you know in your life. But I'm just saying there might be a reason. God has shown us and said, listen, this is what's going to happen. When, when you sin, the way I've created you, 
it's going to be passed down to your children and your children's children and you're going to create havoc. It's not God being vindictive or mean. It's God saying, this is how you've been created. Because the opposite is true with those rats. They then discovered that they could breed the stupidity out. They could breed the stupidity out of these rats. And when we in our lives follow God and can resist the devil and can create good things in our lives through God's power, those things will also be passed on. And those things, God says, will be passed on to a thousand generations. God is not prescribing what's going to happen. He is describing what will happen and is showing how his law works in our lives. Moses, mediating, seeing in that moment the opportunity for grace, seeing in that moment of utter sin and debauchery, of God expressing that sin can exist, saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity to understand the gracious mercy of God. And it's that gracious mercy in our lives that gives us hope. Our hope is in Jesus. Through God's help, we can learn that we can behave boldly for God, that we can approach his throne boldly, that we can live boldly for God and behave boldly in his gracious mercy and that even while we are sinners, Christ died for us. And that gift is still available. The only way to stop longing for Egypt, to stop longing for the things in our lives that hold us back, that distract us from God, that affect how we interact with God. The only way to stop longing for former slavery in our lives is to long for the promised land. To long for for Jesus in our lives. To know that while sin is wrathful to God, His loving, gracious mercy is available to each of us. It's described to us in a way where we can boldly say, God, it is you that I hope for. We just have to allow God to remove the baggage. Allow God to remove the baggage that holds us back and become the anchor in our lives. To become the anchor that sits graciously and mercifully behind a veil so that it doesn't just destroy us. God's veiling is his mercy. And he longs to pull that veil back, to remove the heavens, to come down and to be reunited with us. 
God longs for us to live boldly for him. Will you put your anchor in Jesus Christ? Your anchor in God. Your anchor who mercifully sits behind the veil. Will you put your anchor in Christ today and behave boldly for God?
trust in His righteousness alone. Faultless stand before the throne. Faultless stand before the throne. Dear Heavenly Father, indeed you are our cornerstone. And Father, the words we've heard today where you describe yourself, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. Father, help us to know you the way you've described yourself. Help us to put nothing between ourselves and you. Help us to dive into the word and know you for ourselves, not to trust in other books, descriptions about the Bible, not to leave our trust only in that, but to look to your word. Help us not to trust only in what our pastors say about you. We can use what they tell us, but help us to dive into ourselves into a relationship with you. Let nothing, Lord, be between us and you. Thank you, God, for this message, for who you are, for salvation, our cornerstone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.